done. We have been going through uh, a series that's been, it's been powerful for me to study through. I hope it's been powerful for us all to study through. We've been looking at Jesus, the healer, uh, and his ministry as healer. That it isn't some side trick he did. It wasn't something that was little signs. It is fundamentally who he was, who he is, and who he will always be. And so our goal has been for these past four weeks, five weeks today, has been to increase our faith, that we would have an expectation that if we are with Jesus, if we're with the healer, we should expect healing. We should expect our bodies to be whole, our minds to be whole, and our spirits to be whole. If you're feeling unworthy and you feel like you're still waiting for the moment that you're worthy to go before him, to seek restoration, to seek recovery, and to seek healing, know that your healer is a lavish gift giver who gives to everyone. Uh, before we get started, I, uh, I think it's worth it to say kids have terrible timing, don't they? They, do, they just, the most unbelievably bad timing. I could be rushing to get out the door five minutes late, burning breakfast, baby screaming, and in that moment, there's a question so critical that I must answer, that can't wait for the car, can't wait for a moment. The, the Martians are here, death beam is on the earth, I've got five seconds to answer my five-year-old's questions, or we all die. And the question is so critical, what was the name of the bad guy on Sonic the Hedgehog? <laughs> Needs to be answered right now. So, so you think, so that's interesting, I was gonna get to that debate, because I was sitting there and I'm trying to remember, I'm like, gosh, I played the video games, what is it? And then so I just, I'm running around the house trying to think of this, she's like, I need to know, I need to know. And so finally it hits me like, Dr. Robotnik, it's Dr. Robotnik. And she goes, hmm, no, I think it's Eggman. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you asking? So the thing is, I think she's wrong. I think we just watched the movies, Robot. You say Eggman? All right. Well, one of us is right. I don't know who it is. And so finally, just when, in that moment, what you do is you just, whatever they said. What, what did you say his name was? Eggman? That's it. Go put your shoes on. That's how you end it. Now, I guess it's uh, uh, safe to say my daughter gets very different customer service experiences depending on where I am in the moment. <laughs> different dads, the, the, the get on the knee, eye level, tender teaching dad doesn't exist in that moment. He's gone and rush dad is there. I wish I was the same all the time. I wish I could pause at any moment, and, uh, but I can't. And so she gets very different people. I find it remarkable though that Jesus is the same that the same tender healer that we saw in his best moments as he's on a stroll is the same tender healer we see on the night he's betrayed. And, and it, the night of betrayal is so interesting because we can look at it as just Judas, but there is this overwhelming betrayal that's happening all over the place. The Messiah's nation is Israel. He's coming to take care of them. He's betrayed by them. He asks his disciples, stay up and pray with me. He just, he doesn't want to be lonely. And they keep falling asleep. He's betrayed by them. He's betrayed by Judas. It is a difficult night. Uh, a God that knows all things has no guesswork and no wonder of how painful this is going to be to him physically, uh, mentally, spiritually, how difficult the next 24 hours will be for him. There is no mystery. And it is hard for him to go through. And yet, in the anguish that he's in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this scene takes place. 
Luke 22, starting in 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came to him, and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? What do we know about this crowd? We come to find out a little bit later as we read on that this is the temple authority and its elders. It's the highest religious authority that exists. And they've met in secret, and we are seeing the uh, action point of a conspiracy that's been growing against Jesus. And they're surrounded with temple guards. These, when we're reading about the guards, these aren't Roman guards. These are the temple guards who in numerous texts from all kinds of authors at this time talk about the brutality of the temple guards. You wouldn't expect that. It's a temple, a place of worship, but they, they were rough. Particularly, there's a lot of connotation between the Jewish temple guards and clubs. They looked at clubs the same way that an oppressed people group would look at uh, oppressive police like Gestapo and their nightsticks. And, and controlling a crowd, the beatings and the pushing and the, the, the unfairness of it all, that if you were the kind of person who they weren't going to be in trouble for striking with the club, you would be more likely to get struck with it. So it's tough people, it's difficult people, and religious people who awaited and conspired for this secluded moment. Sometimes you wonder, what is the nature of Judas's betrayal that he's going to go and give him a kiss on the cheek as if the people that have been listening to Jesus now teaching in the temple courts for many, many days wouldn't recognize him? What Judas provided them with was something they critically needed. They needed to find Jesus alone. They needed to get a spot where they could arrest him without a hubbub because it is the elites that have rejected Jesus and not the people. And so this plot is hinged on Judas knowing something that nobody else knows. When no one else can follow Jesus and they don't know where he's at, we need one person who knows where he's at to tell us this is the conspiracy. And so Judas comes and he knows what secluded garden he's going to go to. He knows when he is going to be there. And they've asked him to go in front of them that before they are seen, he'll go up to the shadowy figure and signify to them which one is Jesus. So if they try to run, they know which one to chase. So it is, a, it is a critical betrayal. It's something that they needed, and they need it because of their duplicity, that they cannot arrest him publicly. And the, uh, one of the things that's interesting is we look at the, the kiss itself. There is a lot of, there, teachers would often receive a kiss of affection and dedication from the people they taught. So it was common for a student to go and give their rabbi a kiss as a sign of affection and acceptance and a thing of this is who I belong to. And the irony of this, the irony of that being the mode of betrayal, the one reason that Judas could get close to the shadowy figure, show them which one it's going to be, is not missed at all on Jesus. He says to him, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And it's interesting that he doesn't say me. Every time Jesus says the Son of Man, he's, he's speaking about his office, his position, and his anointing as Messiah. It is a warning to Judas. One final warning. Are you really going to betray the heir of all things with the close relationship you had with him, with your duplicity? And he's got them alone exactly what they wanted because they're too cowardly to do this in public. It must be done in secret. We're going to jump ahead, and we'll get back to the middle, but I want to read where Jesus talks to this crowd so we understand a little bit more about them. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, 
the officers of the temple guard and the elders who, uh, who had come for him. Am I leading rebellion that you have come with me with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. The term Jesus uses for rebellion is actually more similar. It could be rebel, but it also means it's like rebel rouser, uh, robber, thief. These are other ways it's translated. And so while the NIV translation there is valid, it could be more accurately translated as, am I an antisocial criminal that you have to come at me in secret and in force? Because everything he, do, he did has been in public, completely in public. There's no secret thing that requires a secret capture. Zealots did things in secret. Zealots were a group of people during that time that were like Jewish ultra-nationalists. We would think of them today as insurgents or terrorists. They would go to crowded places, typically actually the temple court, even where Jesus is uh, being, everything accused against him is going to be taking place in that spot and what he said there. But they would go to these crowds, they'd have daggers under their cloaks, and they would stab high-ranking Jewish officials that were partnering with the Roman Empire, wealthy family members, people to make a mess. They would hide the dagger and escape. And so there's these ultra-nationalist criminals that have been a problem that, for Jews' own interests, they need to help crush these people so that Rome does not overreact. But Jesus is not like this at all. In fact, Jesus has a reformed zealot in his midst. There are two Simons. There's Simon Peter and there's Simon the Zealot meaning that one of the people with Jesus has taken this, this passion for his ultranationalism and has had it reguided and reconstructed into compassion and being for the kingdom of God and reaching people. So Jesus is not a zealot. He reforms them with his very presence. He is not cloak and dagger in the least. Everything he has said has been entirely unconcealed. So why not arrest him openly? Why not just say, there it is. There's the false teaching. We all heard it. Let's arrest him. I don't know about you, but if we all witnessed a murder take place, we wouldn't wait till tonight and go sneak up and arrest the person. We would say, we all saw it. What are we waiting for? They're waiting because they feared the people. What these elites wanted more than anything was the respect of everybody to be on them and not on God. And certainly not on the Messiah. He was not what they wanted. He did not make them stand up taller. He made them look shorter, and they wanted him gone. The people, however, love Jesus. He's still popular with the populace, just not everybody else. The one doing shameful deeds wants secrecy. Jesus speaks in the light of day, and they do their deeds at night. The attack that takes place here, I want to read that next. Uh, it says in verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they could see the betrayal taking place, the guards approaching. They said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. We know who this uh, disciple is because John tells us, which confirms my theory there may have been a little bit of a rivalry between John and Peter, that that's the gospel that says that was Peter. Peter's the one that went cutco on the guard. We know a few things uh, about this person. Another gospel tells us his name is Malchus. We know from this one that he is a servant with the high priest. Our former pastor, Lowell, has a saying that he loves, that speaking of close friendships, that uh, some friends of ours are those with whom we would steal horses. 
Uh, just this close-knit friend that would just be with you and keep secrets and go to the craziest things with you. We know this must have been a critical servant simply for the fact that this is one with whom you hunt messiahs. This is someone that I would go and do this duplicitous act with, this secret thing with. And so this servant is close and very critical, must be. And we also know that if you are maimed, if you are missing a body, any part of your body, you cannot serve in the temple complex. So if his ear is removed, he's going to lose his place, he's going to lose his position. And when you are a slave and you lose your household, you're in enormous trouble in this time in history. Peter doesn't realize something when he does this, but his attack is going to give the temple guards and the priests and everybody exactly what they wanted to prove that Jesus' followers are violent, that they are criminals, and that they attack. He gives the enemy everything they want. And in this moment in the narrative, the disciples represent all of us who attempt to take matters into our own hands. When we feel like God isn't coming through or is being inactive. You see, there's an expectation that these Jews had for what the Messiah would be. And it's getting to such a pinch point because Rome is conquering them. They are crushing them. It, was, it started out as a friendly alliance that has turned into an occupation that is turning into more and more oppression. And there has been this dream the Messiah will come and he will lead a grand revolution and start a global kingdom and all of the troubles in the world will be solved under him meaning that there were a lot of people who followed Jesus around waiting for the anti-Roman rise up, waiting for the kingdom to begin. They cannot reconcile this moment when Jesus would be handed over to the enemy. It doesn't fit the expectation. It doesn't fit what they thought the Messiah was going to do. And so they take matters into their own hands. They don't let Jesus reply. They don't wait. Peter takes out a sword and begins attacking. In their haste, they don't realize what God is doing. And they confirm to Christ's accusers everything that they wanted to see about his followers. They didn't know what Jesus knew. What he said there in the, at the end of our passage today, that this is their hour, in the hour when darkness reigns that this will be the hour when darkness reigns. And not the sense that it was Satan's wrath poured out on Jesus on the cross, but that it is a moment where the kingdom of darkness takes over for this time to do to the Messiah what it wants to do and unwittingly becomes a tool and an instrument in God's plan for the redemption of humanity. We can never forget that it was God's wrath that's poured out to Christ on the cross. It is the moment when darkness reigns. That was hard for them, that, from them, excuse me, that was a hard pill to swallow then, and it is a hard pill to swallow now. That we still live in an era when darkness still reigns. In the uh, sci-fi fantasy movie, Minority Report, there are these uh, people that can see the future. They're called precognitives or precogs. Their brains are hooked up into computers, and they people decipher the images they're seeing of murders that are about to take place, that have not taken place yet. And the movie follows this justice system that then goes, deciphers them quickly, and intercepts and stops the murder and then prosecutes the murderer. 
And the question throughout the whole movie is, is anyone really guilty if you stop them before they do it? And the main character continually defends the point and continually defends what it is until it becomes clear that people who know the precog system can manipulate the images to get away with murder, and the system is released and people are let go. We are at a point to where sin is still proving its bitter fruit in human history. Are people really guilty of anything if you stop them? If, you, if there was never pain, if there was never sickness, if there was never death, is there anything to be judged and thrown away? Sin has to prove its bitter fruit first and be judged and be removed. This is an hour of darkness, an hour of darkness when pandemics can happen, when school shootings can happen, when good people that we know can get sick and die. And it's a struggle then, and it's a struggle now to understand how we can be so close with a wonderful God of light and life and still feel the full brunt effects of the hour of darkness that is on us. We can say to ourselves, yes, I want healing, but didn't God let me get sick? And yes, maybe I need healing in my spirit, but why did God let those wounds even happen to me in the first place? And I'm going to be honest, I can't offer you a statement that's going to answer all of that. Answers to those questions typically come through experience. We experience God and we experience our relationship with him. And we find answers that we really can't articulate. But know this, we live in a fallen world of sickness and decay. And yet the Redeemer makes us new. Bursting into this world, one day we'll make all things new, and we who are in the middle of it with one foot in eternal promises and one foot in this world are experiencing the first fruits, as the Bible says, of those promises and good things. When a harvest is first becoming ripe and most of it isn't, a few of the kernels, a few of the things become ripe. In the same way that when the hoods are ripe, they will be at Leopold's first and they won't be in the grocery stores for a week because the Leopold's will have the first fruits, the first of their crops that ripen, they will sell at their stands. And when the rest of it ripens, it gets shipped to everybody else. We are at a point to where we experience healing and restoration that is a first fruit of the grand harvest that's to come when the, I get emotional, when the Messiah completes the work, when pain is done away with when those who are dead in Christ rise again. It doesn't mean that the first fruit will be the only thing that we taste. The bitter fruit of darkness will still be there, but there is still healing we could expect. And we can't let the disappointment of darkness let us lose sight of what God has done and take matters into our own hands. We see darkness thrive in the news as we watch it on TV or see it on our phone. We see it thrive around the world around us. And our response cannot be, we're going to fight God's battles for him. That we are going to push back and assault people that are making the worst mistakes. Or we too will prove to all the God-haters that Christ and his followers are antisocial criminals. Inappropriate aggression from Christians confirms very bad things about the Savior to the world today. The ways that we can be uh, wanting to do good things, but in a very bad way. We must be careful to do a lot of things in Jesus' name, and we must be extremely cautious and never attack in his name. We have to be careful to see how Jesus does it. 
What does he do? Because I'll tell you, if I look at the way he does it and I look at the way I do it, I have to admit that he is a lot more patient and long-suffering than I am. And he is way more gracious with his enemies than I am with mine. He is worth emulating all that he does. Verse 51, shortest verse of the day. But Jesus answered, no more of this. He touched the man's ear and he healed him. Kindness ends the dispute in this moment. This is a sword fight breaking out with a group of men that are outnumbered by people that are swinging clubs and swords all day long. And kindness puts an end to these hostilities. Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. That his act of kindness changes the way people are and changes their hearts. It ends the fight and it saves Peter's life. How do you prosecute that? One of his servants cut off the ear of one of mine. No, he didn't. Well, he miraculously healed it, but that's not the point. You can't bring that up in court. This is shut up about the ear. No one needs to know about it. Get that blood off. You wouldn't want anyone to know that Jesus healed the ear, so it doesn't come up. And Peter skates. Christ's tenderness in this moment, it brings this global restoration and healing. That the, the fight doesn't take place, the fight that could have taken place. The books of the gospel that we read from disciples that would have been stabbed to death in that moment are healed by this incredible act of kindness. People are changed, not with steely resolve or swords of truth to the face. People are impacted by real kindness and a restoring touch that might just make them hear the voice of God. The graciousness of this healing. It's amazing because... What, what really makes it stand out above all the other ones we've looked at in this series isn't necessarily even what Jesus did, but who he did it to. He did this healing to an accuser that did not ask for it. That at his hardest, darkest moment, in the most stressful time, he is still healer, he is still protector, he is still restorer. At your worst and most unworthy moment, know this. God's kindness is effective to change your course. We experience this guy's experience all the time. That what we get back in reciprocity for what we've done, he comes in a traitor to his own Messiah and receives his ear back. We can come in worthy of something very different, but what Christ wants to give us and put into our lives is acts of kindness, healing, and restoration because that's what changes human hearts. That's something we need to think about in everything, the way that we deal with family, that we would emulate Jesus and realize that it is kindness that's going to change anybody. That if I want to parent at my best, I better be a parent who's really good at mercy. Because in all the years I've known Jesus, that's when he's most productive in my heart, is when I am getting some kindness and healing and restoration that I do not deserve. His healing does not wait for the perfect moment when everything's fine and it's all quiet and he has a moment to do this healing. It does it in the worst moment because he is a gracious and lavish gift giver. And with his touch, we're changed. I'll tell you, we have no record of this man's response to this. We don't know what he did with it. What a weird experience. I'd like to know how he felt about it. 
What, what came of him? On Pentecost, when Christianity explodes and all these people get converted right there in his hometown, what did he do? Was he there? Is he among the converts? I have no idea. But we do have record of our response to Christ's tender touch. What are we doing with it? And what, how do we live after the touch of such a wonderful healer? And how important it is to go there as often as we can to receive that, to be changed in our hearts by that kindness that is not deserved. There is no perfect timing and no perfect request for God's goodness. There are no perfect people who come in not smelling like sin and find that they're treated like honored guests. So we need to ask for healing, expecting grace, and not a perfectly rehearsed, I deserve it today kind of healing. This is not a healing that takes place after weeks of fasting and praying. It's not something that he spent time at a monastery or even decluttered his life. He doesn't even ask for it, nor does he repent. Because God is a healer and a restorer. And that maybe, just maybe, if we expect healing, if we expect this grace, this touch that heals from God in our lives, we'll receive back our hearing and can hear his voice all the more. Because the greatest healing that we can receive, it's, it's the funnel from which everything else, all the other healings pour out, is fellowship with God. The closeness with God, daily being with God. The greatest thing you could be healed to. In that space, when you're with the caretaker, when you're in the house of the healer, when the shepherd's hands are on you, we could experience to be healed in our body, healed in our mind, and healed in our spirit. And that healing is going to pour out of his grace and our faith in that grace, to rely on it, to lean on it, to expect it, and to go there knowing that I could go smelling, acting, and dressed like a fugitive, and he would still be good to me. And I am not doing anything wrong when I receive goodness of God when I don't deserve it because that's the stuff that will actually finally do the thing I've been waiting for forever to change to receive God's goodness, knowing we don't expect it, celebrating we don't expect it, because in his goodness we are changed. Let's pray today. Lord, I ask that you would not let us forget for a moment what a healer you are. May the last five weeks be seared on our hearts that we would expect and want to see you moving in our lives, healing and restoring us. God, I pray that we would have a confidence to go to you when we don't feel like we deserve it. That when we feel at our worst and the most shame, would you give us a fresh reflex that we would say, I need to go to a place I don't deserve to receive from God something that is good and refreshing that I could be changed. Oh God, how we would have a completely different life if we had heart changes. Change us in our hearts. Lord, I pray for everybody in here who is facing physical unwellness, sickness and disease, Lord. Right now as a church, we lift up these ailments and we say, Lord, would you bring healing on this body? Would you bring healing in this place to, to limbs, to hearts, to, to lungs, God? Would you bring healing to backs? Lord, let us feel your healing touch moving through us, restoring us, restoring the ones that we love, the ones that we care for. 
Let the first fruits be ours in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for our minds that can be wounded, wounded in relationships, broken and hurt, stuck in loops going round and round and round and broken thoughts rattling our lives. Lord, begin your work as you interrupt that cycle. As a word of truth would just, as you had authority over the storm, God, you spoke to it and it stopped. Lord, I pray that your voice would speak now and that it would be stopped. Lord, stop the clutter and the mess that whirls around inside of us, that there would be a clear and open space between you and us, that our minds could be healed, restored, rehabbed, brought into new. Lord, we pray that you would be in this place healing anxiety and depression. moving in our lives that from the soul, the mind of who we are, you would make us well. Lord, we pray that you would move in our spirits, that if we have struggled to perceive you, to give you the honor and the glory that's worthy of your name, if we have been dead on the inside to you, Lord, This is the thing that only the Messiah can do. Make our spirits alive again. As your spirit dwells with our spirit, bring renewal. That rivers of life would come out of us, of spiritual life. Lord, I pray for revelation, for understanding, for spiritual joy, for prophetic understanding to be healed as your hands go into our spirits and make them whole. Help us to be healing to one another, Lord. Give us the healing words and touches to each other as we share this space in this church with one another. You are welcome in this place. In your name we pray, amen.